Hello, and welcome to our podcast, The Magical Holistic Healing Arts, where we interview different practitioners of many modalities to learn greater ways to take care of our sacred body temple in health and beauty and well-being. I'm Erica Hicks. And I'm Lynn Hicks. We're also proud distributors of Kang & Water, the life-changing elixir to our life. With Kang & Water, you can make your own environmental-friendly, non-toxic, chemical-free cleaning products that actually work. Clean your home, wash your clothes, do your dishes, and sanitize your counters, all while maintaining a cleaner, greener home with Enagic, Kang & Water. And we have an excellent website down below if you have any interest on looking at blog posts and different recipes on how to use your Kang and Water machine with your different cleaning products. So take a look and reach out. On today's episode, we have Will Clipman, who is a percussionist, poet, performing and recording artist, mass maker, storyteller, and educator. And we'll just have Will explain his story. So Will, what is your magical art? My magical art is threefold. It's music, myth, and mask. Um, I've been a professional musician for 40 years. I started playing drums and percussion when I was three years old. Mm -hmm. And I started writing poetry when I was six and took up mask making much later um, as a young adult. But I think of it in a way as uh, setting up your teepee. When you put your teepee up, the three, the first three poles are really important. You have to select the longest and straightest and sturdiest lodge poles, and the way they're set and balanced and lashed together uh, determines whether or not the structure is going to be sound and long-lasting. So for me, those first three teepee poles are music, myth, and mask. Mm, I like that. I like that explanation. (laughs) All right. Well, tell us further. Tell us further. Uh, Within the mythic realm, I'm specifically a poet. I'm actually a published poet. I have one book out. Uh, I've got about three more written and ready to go. They're just in search of publishers. Uh, But as I said, I've been writing poetry since I was six years old. I grew up just by good fortune, in a family in which education and reading were and books were very important. And uh, my paternal grandmother was a poet. So I took, I got the notion in my head very early in life that this was a cool thing to do and l- actually learned how to read and write before I went to first grade just because of my upbringing. Uh, so I wrote my first little rhyming ditty and took it to her, which was a good move, and she went nuts over it. So that kind of launched my career as a poet. Uh, The music was also a matter of happy circumstance. My father was a drummer, and my mother played piano. And as soon as I could get down the stairs in our family home in Philadelphia, where I grew up, I got up on my father's drum throne and picked up a stick and hit one of the tom-toms and again you might call it dumb luck you might call it destiny i don't i don't know but that particular drum uh the 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 tuning and the resonance and the reverberation of it just went through my body and kind of rearranged my molecular structure and i knew at the age of three that i was going to do that 
forever. I wasn't even sure what that was, but I knew I wanted to have that feeling and do whatever it took to have that feeling uh, forever. So here I am 20 years later, <laughs> but a bish, there's a splash symbol when I need one. No, over a half a century later, still, still doing it at a, you know, at a professional level, recording and touring and performing and, and so on. So uh, those are the first two poles of the TP. The third one, if you'd like me to continue. Yes. Yeah, I just want to say that there's such a good part about myth um, and storytelling. You know, I'm in a lot of oral traditions and learned from people from the Himalayas, and it really is through the storytelling tradition. And I think it's powerful way as poetic and mystic and all of that, but so much of our ideas and things really are told through that storytelling poetic way. And, and we're supported in our brain, right, to understand because of the mnemonics and the allegories. So it's something that I think a lot of maybe youthful kids, do you find? Like to, myths or story, mm -hmm. yes, yeah, so, because they might have kind of dropped out a little bit on that. I do see the um, importance of them, though, because that's where you get the metaphors and people can understand things a little easier when they're in that imagery and can create that story themselves in their head. Then they can remember it better and then share it to the world in their authenticity. So, yeah, I think it's. It's something that is very important for our evolution. It is an archetypal human experience. People have been telling each other stories since the beginning of language. And, uh, and certainly the greatest stories ever told are in the form of poems, the epics uh, from every culture on earth that has written literature, has uh, a body of epic poetry that kind of tells the fundamental stories of the people. But it's also word of mouth. And there are cultures, of course, that don't even today don't have written language. So the idea of gathering together around the fire and sharing your experience that day and the larger story of the people as it's unfolding is really a fundamental human experience. And that's, I think, what people, in a sense, are really missing right now is getting together around the fire and telling our stories face to face. Um, it's the technology is great because it enables us to do that in a way, but it's not quite the same. And I, as a performer uh, who's used to being in front of an audience, it, I, I miss that. I miss that cycle of energy and the feedback that you get from uh, a live audience, whether it be one person in whom, with whom you're having a conversation or a thousand people in a concert hall. So yeah, that's really fundamental to being human on planet Earth, I think. Well, and I think to notice that, like even music and lyric, I mean, it's all poetic. Sometimes people think poetic or myths aren't you know, they're, they're much more expanded than maybe our version of definition, mm. you know, and it's, it is, it's a key part to humanity. And if all our technology went off, that's what we'd have. 
Yeah, and I often wonder how people would react if the power just went off. <laughs> and I try to prepare for that every day in different ways because there's no guarantee that we're going to hit that switch and it's all going to be there. Um, but you're right, and, and I think it is simpler, as you say, than people imagine, and that's sometimes what puts people off from poetry, the idea that it's some arcane, difficult, esoteric thing that are only a certain exclusive club of people can enjoy and get, and nothing could be further from the truth, because the word, the root word in Greek simply means maker. So anyone who makes anything from a mud pie to the Taj Mahal is engaging in poetry in the root meaning of the word. And it's also, it can be utterly simple. The, the shortest poem ever written that I know of was by Muhammad Ali. And he was giving the commencement address at a prestigious Ivy League college, might have been Harvard. And he went on and on in his way and at the end he got a standing ovation and some one of the graduates yelled out Ali give us a poem and he paused for a moment and smiled and he said me we and there was silence and then the place went nuts and that's the shortest poem in English that I know of but it can be that simple just a truth that kind of hits you like the diamond bullet in the forehead and there's a moment of uh, realization, um, truth. And that's why we write, I think, is to get to that. It's, it is publishing and entertainment and literature and so on. But at the end of the day, if you're not seeking truth, why bother? <laughs> yeah, I, I used to love poetry and imagery when I was in elementary school. And just thinking about, now I'm a painter, and it is just a different art form. And um, I just feel as maybe poetry is like an ab the abstract art of literature because it is, you have to use creative words or yeah, the imagery and it's all just this um, compilement of someone's truth or authenticity that they came up with. And um, yeah, so that was just a thought that crossed my mind <laughs> about a poem and painting, but. <laughs> Well, I, I feel a real connection with painting. I'm not a painter. I do some painting in my mask making, but I'm certainly not a, a painter with a capital P. But I, when I'm playing uh, drums or percussion, I think of my palette of sound in the same way that a painter would regard her palette of color. And uh, the same is true in poetry. To me, it's really about imagery, language that appeals to the senses, words that you can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell, because that's our common ground for understanding one another and appreciating art. Uh, like that painting over your shoulder is very striking. Uh, I don't know if it's a photograph or a painting, and it doesn't really matter, but I keep looking into it because the image arrests my attention and makes me think about what it is, what it means, how it was put together, and so on. So it's like my homepage on my website, if you will. It's kind of an invitation to come into this other creative world and bring yourself to it. So there's immediately contact and communication and an exchange of, of creativity and 
that's kind of where I live and what I live for. If I don't get that, I, I die. <laughs> so it's really important to me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, you know, it cre it's funny because our education and creativity kind of like along the way dropped out so much of that. And for me, you know, that's the luxury of life mm -hmm. is to be in the creative flow, to be in that momentary, um, you know, experience. And like you said, very sensual, all our senses are turned on. Um, and really there's, it's like a top, people are like, oh, I don't have time for that. And it's really the essence of the joy of, for me, a lot of the greatest moments are those that were in creativity flow, ran into someone, went out, to, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. all that spontaneity and open consciousness. Because mm. we're not programming thoughts and ideas. So I that's what I love about your work. And when we get to your mass, I'm excited to hear how that all plays together as the third teepee pole. <laughs> I started making masks in 1985. And again, uh, one of those fortuitous moments of being in the right place and the right time, I happened to be doing a writing workshop and a music workshop as part of a summer fine arts camp in the White Mountains of Northern Arizona. And also on the faculty was a master mask maker named Zarco Guerrero. And I was on a break and was just wandering around campus and happened to pass his classroom and looked in the window and he was getting ready to start his workshop and he was asking for a volunteer to model for a mask. So I burst into the room, much to his startlement, and volunteered. And I guess he thought he better use me or I'd do something weird. So he put me on the table and made one of his plaster bandage life casts on my face. And from the inside out, I just fell in love with the whole concept uh, of the life casting, and then what he did with his mask later and what the students were gonna do with theirs. And that experience uh, launched my mask making career and led to Myths and Masks, which is a combination of my mask art, uh, mythopoetic storytelling and world music. And that's a performance and a workshop and an artist in residency. Uh, so that's how the third leg of my TP fell into place um, and I've been doing it ever since and it's just become a co-equal passion of mine with music and poetry. So when people come to a mask making um, class, so they do, they put the, you do their own face, right? You plaster their face and then is that a symbolization of someone you want to become or something you're letting go or transitioning? That's a great question. Uh, the life casting, which is a term I actually trademarked, I've, I trademarked this whole thing because it seemed like I was the first person who had brought the, all these elements together. I certainly didn't invent masks or poetry, but using it in this way, I think is original. But your question is spot on. What we do is you work with a partner. 
For example, if you and Lynn came to my workshop, you might choose to work together. You might not. You might choose to work with somebody else in the workshop. But you make your partner's life cast using plaster bandage on your partner's face. And then we take a break halfway through and you switch roles and your partner makes your mask. So there's this very intuitive um experience that involves a lot of trust and a lot of personal responsibility and there's a real communication through touch that goes on in making the life cast and that gives you the basic uh, mask blank the template for what will be the finished masks that gets painted and embellished with found 3d objects but what your question really gets at is what's called the mythic persona poem and that's a thing I invented, uh, a persona poem, a poem in a voice other than your ordinary self that kind of tells the life story of the imaginary being that you want your mask to represent. And the way it's structured, it leads you into this world very step-by-step, kind of fill-in-the-blank, so that even if you've never written a line of poetry, don't care about poetry, think that you don't like poetry, you, you succeed with this. And people are, you know, over and over again, are just blown away by what they write themselves and also, you know, parents of children, siblings, uh, uh, partners in relationships, whatever the other relationships they are that they might bring to the workshop. People are just blown away by what the other is capable of and what they themselves are capable of articulating. So <clears throat> that's a long answer to a short, very good question, but the mask is supposed to represent this mythic persona, this inner, I call it the super you, sort of the highest self that you aspire to be and however you imagine that is completely wide open for interpretation and of course you can go way beyond the 10 basic steps of the writing exercise but i build in enough structure so that everyone succeeds and feels good about it and then of course they can run with it wherever they want to go with it but that's what the mask is intended to represent in the setting of my workshop I really like that because, cool. yeah, the, um, well, persona, you know what I mean? We're always in the personality and everyone talks about taking off your mask and putting on your mask and now we're masking big time with the yeah. <laughs> real mask, yeah, like beyond <laughs> just the surface. Um, but, to, you know, to create the mask of, and to call it a mask of that greater you know, one you want to become, um, that's really cool. And to have like a representation that you can have on your wall or, you know, yeah, a piece of art that you can look at and remind yourself, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to strive to be. And maybe you could put it on too. I'm sure people put it on after they make them to encourage themselves or I don't know. <laughs> you need to do this. You're like two steps ahead of me in this discussion. <laughs> That's exactly right. We make them wearable. And because they're an exact replica of your facial features, no matter how you paint and embellish them, you can put it on and wear it hands-free. And if you want to, you can perform your mythic persona poem. 
So we always close, say, a weekend retreat with what I call the circle of celebration. And you're invited but not uh, compelled to put your mask on and share your mythic persona poem. And that's really the, the moment of transformation because people become this other being right before everyone else's eyes and right before their own inner eye. Uh, it's really profound and magical and just leaves people very tingly um, to have that experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's meant to be performed with, um, and, and just to touch on that notion that you would keep it for a while, if it's made right, it will last a lifetime. And I've been doing this for a long time, since 1985. And I've been doing it in schools a lot as an artist in residency with little kids. So I have adults who were fifth grade students of mine 20 years ago who still have their masks hanging in their dorm rooms, in their office, at this business they've started. I've had people call me up or contact me through my website and say, you know, I just wanted to reach out and thank you for that thing we did in 1994 when I was in fifth grade, because I don't know why, but it has a lot to do with me having started my own high-tech consulting firm in Scottsdale, and I still have my mask on the wall of my office. True story. Um, and there's bunches of those. One, just quickly, I was at one school for over 20 years every year. And so I had multiple siblings in one family go through myths and masks. And the family had all five of those masks in like glass uh, cases over their, uh, the mantelpiece of their fireplace in the family home. And it's like generations, you know. Uh, so, yes, it's very lasting. It's very profound. It's a ton of fun. And, and that's really what it's all about. And profound for sure, because if you're adding the music, you've got the poetry and the mat, like it's a full on experience. So really those words and that mask are just the remnants of whatever must really be the gem of that experience. Yeah, to me, the poem is the heart and soul of it. but the And the mask is a, a physical representation of that. Mm -hmm. So they do come together beautifully. And when I do my performance, I add music. <clears throat> so I'm playing music on indigenous instruments from around the world and putting on different masks who are the narrators of that particular story that I've written, mythopoetic story, I call them. And there might be five or six or seven of them in a, in a performance. Um, so yeah, all of that. Uh, the, again, those are kind of the three initial lodge poles of the teepee. And I, I think of my life as being the teepee. Uh, and it's, it's not done. <laughs> uh, I guess when it's done, I'll just be done, but <laughs> still doing it. Um, so you do these three things, and obviously you do a lot of performance. I mean, you've got the up for the Grammys, you have all the Native American music. So you want to share a little bit about that performance piece and, you know, what what you do or how that takes you? Or, or how, what inspired you to kind of, I guess, go that direction of being in the 
native native people around <laughs> around the world that's an interesting question you know when i was a little kid and we were playing cowboys and indians i always wanted to be the indian i don't know why and i was really into authenticity so i had to have a headband with feathers and face paint and whatever in my childish imagination what was authentic for that <clears throat> and then again serendipity maybe or not um, instead of being in boy scouts my brothers and i uh, were in with my father we're in this thing called indian guides and it was like a native american themed boy scouts we had teepees instead of tents we had vests and headbands instead of merit badges and the outfit and instead of earning merit badges you earned feathers for different accomplishments and tasks and so on. And so, you know, it just went on from there, but I always, and, and I also have Native American ancestry. Um, and I was always fascinated by that. The same grandmother who inspired me to become a poet uh, was of Cherokee descent. And her name, Ladaska, is a derivation of a Cherokee word, which means everlastingly true. And I was just fascinated by that. She and I were very close. And, uh, you know, so she would share things about that with me. And, um, and that was just a lifelong um, sort of fascination. When I, when I moved to Arizona, uh, we have uh, more, you know, Native American um, tribal lands than any place in the lower 48. The, the Navajo Nation is bigger than the state of Massachusetts. So there's a lot of Native culture here, and it's not, it's not just romanticized archival stuff. It's living people who are, speak the language and have been practicing the culture for generations. And uh, in 1983, uh, again, just being in the right place at the right time and ha having my wits about me and taking advantage of it, I met R. Carlos Nakai, who's the world's premier performer and composer of the Native American flute. And that launched a 30-year collaboration with him. Uh, we've recorded over a dozen albums and toured the world together, and we still perform together. In fact, he's coming here this afternoon for a rehearsal right after our zoom um to get ready for some shows we have coming up so that was a you know a mind-blowing first-hand present tense immersion in uh native culture and led to my association with canyon records which is the world's foremost producer and distributor of native american music and i don't present myself as native american obviously i'm not an enrolled member of any tribe but I kind of um, have that vibe, you know, and I want to get to the source of things and I want to be authentic. And I also want to be me, you know, be true to me in that context. So my being here in Northern Sonora and having met Nakai and having worked with Canyon Records for 30 years and having 35 albums out on that label, is a wonderful manifestation of what began as a childhood um, dream. You know, I, I really believe in dreaming your life into being 
and believing in that and trusting that. And it's hard. You don't always, we all fall down and you get back up and try it again. But that was a childhood dream of mine. And I didn't know it was going to land me here doing all this when I was six, but it did. (laughs) So, you know, I'm kind of still following that, you know, living, trying to dream my reality into being and following that path. Got to stop asking such provocative questions. No, but these are, this is important, good stuff. Like dreaming, like a lot of healers we've interviewed, it's been like a personal crisis or a health crisis. And here you, every time you say it, it's like you just were in alignment. And so it's really lovely to hear that. You dream that, you remember this. You know, certainly you didn't know exactly what that dream was, but you knew you loved music, you knew you loved Indian, you know, all of that. And it's good to hear that because often people, I mean, either way is perfect. It's a crisis that sets us in a direction, but it sounds so much more lovely that we can just dream our way there. Yeah. And everyone says like, be childlike or find joy or yeah, create your reality from your dreams. And you are such an expander for all of our listeners right now to know that it is possible and you can do what your dreams are as long as you stay focused and really envision what you want and stay true to yourself and that authenticity and truth inside. So thank you for sharing all of that. It's been, it sounds like a great journey thus far. (laughs) Thus far, right. And you're right. Focus and being true to yourself uh, are, are very key. Uh, and that's hard. You know, you can't, like I say, I don't succeed at that every day. I try. But, you know, um, you just keep, keep at it. And uh, something Lynn said, crisis, the Chinese ideogram for crisis is a combination of the ideogram for danger and the ideogram for opportunity. And that's really all a crisis is. Yeah, there's an element of risk and danger, but it's also an opportunity. And if you take fear out of the equation, which is the great soul killer, then you're, you're ready to you know, seize that moment and do something with it. Um, so I really think <clears throat> you know, there's really nothing to be afraid of. And if you, if you can wrap your mind around that, then you can seize that moment of opportunity and take the risk and, and just do it. Well, and you know what? That's really what it is because you do, like for you along your road, I'm sure there were times you derailed or doubted or, and so what continued, like, do you have any, you know, information or practices or you know points of view of how you found that retracking to get back and believe and dream still more i think yeah i mean how far back do you want to go i had an existential crisis about five minutes ago um (laughs) i doubt and fear and fall down and fail multiple times every day um what works for me is to get out of my own head and remember that it's not all about me. 
and I look out the kitchen window and I see three little Harris squirrels playing with each other around the water bowl. Or I look at the sky, you know, and I watch the sunset or I just sit still and listen and hear, you know, a morning dove doing its little five note call and then its mate answering from further away. Anything to take one out of one's own ego centrism which we're all prey to and that's so refreshing and liberating and that lets you let go of the sense of having failed uh, and just move on do either do that thing again and hopefully successfully this time or get a little better at it this time or do something else you know turn put that book away and open a different one um, yeah, but it's it's kind of turning the lens outward is what works for me. I know that's something that I definitely struggle with is psychosis of the brain that you just keep on that hamster wheel thinking the same thing over and over. And um, yeah, it's good to have multiple tricks to get you out of that. And I love what you said to put your expand your your perception and to know that it isn't all about you and I can think of an instant this morning where I could have probably should have done that and um, looking out the window and looking outside and realizing that the world is bigger than just right here right now who you are so yeah I love I love that I'm gonna use that one <laughs> well and you put it so simply and yeah. made it so clear I did yay <laughs> Well, I like I'm, I like practical because I want like the the you know give me the real version that works, and say it in a way that yeah you said it very clearly like I just have to get out of my it's not all about me and I don't know if people always think that not dreaming or that thinking mind really is taking them out of presence dream the the goodness of the world. Well, I think simplicity and clarity are virtues, and I strive for those in all things. Um, there's a million things to distract us from that all day, every day. Uh, but, but I really think there's a lot to be said for just simplifying and clarifying things as much as possible. Uh, and, and some people thrive on complexity and drama and anxiety and crisis and that seems to be what motivates them. And I, so I try not to get caught up in that. Um, and, you know, I'm, I obsess about things and get totally way inside my own dark place. And, you know, I've been there plenty. Uh, and, and I think that's valid. I don't think, I think part of the problem is that people sometimes want to deny that and deny themselves the depth of that, whether it be grief or sorrow or existential crisis or loss or inadequacy, all the things that take us to that deep, dark place. Uh, but there's value in going there, too, and, 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 and uh, allowing yourself to be in it and feel it and feel through it because, you know, sorrow is beautiful. Just, just as joy is. And I don't know if we'd know what joy is if we didn't experience sorrow or any two opposites. That opposition is kind of the engine that drives the universe. And, you know, if you're 
if you're walking that curving line between yin and yang, you eventually get to the embracing circle and then you're kind of, you're home. Um, so, you know, it's all important, you know, just being in the moment and being in that moment as fully as you can, I think is important. I'm glad you brought that up because I do think there's a denial of often, you know, when you feel bad, nobody wants to feel bad for a long time. I understand that. But at the same time, there's a lovely processing that goes through and it is important for your health and your value of other things and knowing the crap from the, you know, it's all important. And we do, it's like a Pollyanna story that we are putting, you know, is kind of what we're supposed to be. I don't even know. I couldn't fit in it if I tried. I don't know if there's anyone who could. Well, no, nobody wants to be sick or get sick or feel bad, uh, you know, obviously. But sometimes if you don't go fully into it, you prolong it. You're sort of in that no man's land or no woman's land where nothing's really moving, like the trenches in World War I. You know, huge amounts of things are being expended, but nothing's really shifting or moving. So sometimes you just have to say, yeah. I am sick, or yeah, I am unhappy, or yeah, I did fail. And, and you know, to get through it, you have to really go into it. You can't go around it, really. <laughs> um, so that avoidance of everything just turns you into a little hothouse flower, and every little thing that goes off kilter shatters your world. I mean, that's that's not helping either. So... Yeah, I think you have to own all of that and just be, you know, be the be a, a whole person. Yes. And I know even in the coronavirus now, we're all kind of facing those pieces of ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, like for me, it's like, oh, there's nothing to, you know, what's next? And finally, my mental game is unraveling. Um, but at first, you know, it was kind of like, all right, this is nice sitting here. Now what? You know, there there was a, my body was loving it, but my mind was like thinking there was more to be managed. Yeah, I think the virus is a teacher. And I think it's teaching us a lot of things about what we took to be normal and how that was not normal or sustainable <laughs> and how we can either, you know, continue along that path, dragging our terrible mistakes behind us, or we can try a new way of being in the world. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of examples of that. And obviously, I'm not minimizing the suffering and the death. And I part of my morning invocation every morning is, you know, for healing healthy energy to all who may be suffering and in pain, especially people who are serving on the front lines of this global experience. So it's not that I, I want to um, whitewash that, but I also really loved the quietude that the world fell into for a minute there. Uh, blue skies over Los Angeles and New Delhi, fin whales playing in empty shipping lanes. Um, you know, it was almost like nature's, hitting the reset button and saying, you know, you can't go on like this. 
Um, and here's what it could be like. Here's a glimpse of what it could be like if you just got your mind around the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. So personally, I don't want to get back to normal. <laughs> I want to move on and make it better. And if, it, if there's any silver lining to this, it's that teaching. Um, so I don't attach a moral uh, equivalency to it, and it certainly isn't black and white. People want to make it very binary. You know, you're either free and maskless or you're, you know, wearing a mask or doing this or not doing it. It's not binary. It's nuanced, and, and we have to be able to think in a nuanced and subtle way about what it means and where to go from here. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an evolutionary opportunity, really. So with this um, pandemic, I guess, <laughs> how are you doing your business or your music? Are you doing music live on the Internet or do you have clients or where can people find you right now for this time? Well, you can always find me at willclipman.com. That's the portal to Willy World, and there's a contact function there, and I always respond to those. Uh, I'm very reachable, actually, uh, by phone or by text or by email or through my website. But, you know, um, on March 5th, all of my work went up in a puff of aerosol sanitizer, so to speak. I, I had a full spring booked, and it just went poof. So that rocked my world and made me think about what am I going to do with this time? And I've done a few live stream concerts, but being Professor Low Tech, that's really not my bag. I mean, I'm, I, have, I have my next live event on May 30th in Pinion Hills, California, Planet of Percussion performance at the the um, Pinion Hills Labyrinth Retreat, which I think is going to be really cool because it's outdoors. Everybody can socially distance, plenty of fresh air. So that's, I'm seeing that as a new beginning of the next booking cycle. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I found myself doing a lot of my own creative work, which was wonderful. A lot of writing and a lot of reading sleeping very deeply and dreaming wildly and, and, and then waking up into the world with all of that um, mythopoetic stuff sort of swirling around. And, uh, and it's been great because you sh I'm just, I'm in the habit, it's a bad habit of putting my own creative work on the back burner first because I have a gig and that, you know, that pays the mortgage and so on. We all have to deal with the world on that level. <clears throat> and when I lost all my work, it was really kind of terrifying. But once I settled into this other groove of being home, being in nature, doing my own creative work, reading, dreaming, um, it, it was, uh, was really quite wonderful. So I've had like almost three months of that. And I'm ready to get back out and start doing it. And I'm going to do that at the end of the month. So it's been, it's been uh, in a way, it's been a real creative time for me. And that's how I've dealt. That's how I've kept myself sane. 
-hmm. you know, and I, and I've tried to act responsibly and rationally. I wear my mask when I grow to go to the grocery store and I'm not saying everyone has to or should, that's just me. But when I do stuff like that, I thought, you know, sometimes you go, ah, I really don't want to put this thing on. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. And why am I doing it? And I decided or saw that I was doing it not so much to protect myself, but to make a social gesture. Like I'm aware of this and I care about it. And that's more for others. Yeah, I'm protected to some degree, but I'm a really low risk candidate for this thing anyway, be living how I live and where I live and so on. Um, and nobody wants to get sick, and I don't, but I, I, I felt like that was more of an outward gesture of awareness and caring. And that's, and that's maybe the most important thing about it, the, the acknowledgement that we're in this together. Mm. And however you deal with it, it's good to be mindful of that. You know, you, everybody can make their own choices about how to deal with it, but that's been part of me staying sane about it and acting in a way that feels right to me about it. Yeah, I like that. It is an honoring of other people and if people have more fear of it by wearing a mask. You're really doing a kind gesture on many levels and I, I hear you on that. That's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah, you don't want to be a bully. You know, you don't want to be act ignorant. Um, that's not helping you or anyone else. And you can tell some people are really fearful. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to exacerbate their fear. Um, I'm not, but that doesn't mean I can have the expectation that everyone is like that. Um, so it's, some of it is sensitivity and just treading lightly on the earth and being, you know, being mindful of what other people's concerns are. Well, thank you so much, Will. We're going to have to finish this episode. Is there any last things you'd like to tell our listeners, even though you just left them with beautiful words right there? <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, be well, be of good cheer, and be in touch. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Yes. Thank you. My pleasure. It was such a pleasure to have Will on our show today and to hear about all of his magic. I love connecting with poetry and art and hearing about the process with his masks as it sounds so powerful and I can't wait until we are able to do that type of creation and gathering hopefully here soon. Yeah, it was a really um, kind of deep and extensive conversation on a lot of different things from poetry to myth to music. Um, and just really how to manage in this time and how as a musician and a performer that's affecting him and what creativity and excitement has come out and really inspired me on how he his dreams kind of unfolded since he was young and he followed his intuition and uh, it's taken him on a path and he, he listened and he heard so we all remember that that's possible. It doesn't always have to be a crisis or a hard time. So we also received um, The Space Between Breasts, one of his newest CDs, and we totally um, inspire you to go get one and listen to some of his music. It's very uh, soothing and exciting and just brings you into the space between breasts, which we spoke of that as well. 
Yes. So all that information is down below. If you want to get in contact with Will or check out any of his CDs or music that he's doing, check that out. And thank you again so much for listening. Send this to all your friends and family. Give us a like, subscribe, or leave us a comment or a review even. We would really appreciate that. So stay safe, vibrant, and healthy out there. We're sending you all the love and light, and we'll catch you next episode.